0: Alright, so last time we were together, uh, it's been a few weeks now, but we began this sixth and final recapitulating cycle of visions here in Revelation. And these cycles, these six cycles, lay out the character and consummation of the spiritual reign of Christ in glory. And this sixth uh, cycle has often been referred to as the millennium because of its, its reference to a thousand years. Now, we, we talked about last time, for a number of reasons, why that thousand years is not to be understood as a literal period, uh, but a symbolic period, the full period, which is the period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming. The advent of Jubilee, which we looked at this morning with the coming of Christ, and the day of vengeance, which will come in Christ's second coming. And those two comings mark the day of the Lord's favor, the jubilee year, the thousand years that brings in the period of Christ's spiritual reign, the advancement of his kingdom, and the gathering of his elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we saw in verses 1 through 3 this picture of the binding of Satan, which was merely a recapitulation of something we already saw back in chapter 12, the defeat of the dragon, the accuser being thrown down. And now what was beautiful is in chapter 12, it primarily focused on the victory of the child, which is Jesus, over Satan through his resurrection. He was carried away to his father and thus he escaped. Now, in this vision of the defeat of Satan, it's the victory of the saints that are pictured with, once again, their spiritual resurrection. They're carrying being carried away from the accuser. And so both of these, both Revelation 12 and 20, denote the defeat of the dragon, the victory of Christ and his people. So when we looked at the binding of Satan in verses 1 through 3, We talked about how that occurred in the first coming of Christ. You saw last week in Pastor Freddie's sermon, there in the wilderness temptation, the very beginning of that binding as Christ defeats Satan in the wilderness and Satan flees from him. He leaves him because he has already lost that first attempt. Those temptations will continue throughout. And what is the primary goal of the temptation? It is to get Christ to try to short-circuit to the crown away from the cross. It's to offer Him a crown without a cross. I'll give you the nations. But Christ will not circumvent the cross because the cross is the way to the crown. And so all of this is a picture of what Christ is doing to bind Satan in his first advent from deceiving the nations. Why? Because how can the house be plundered lest the strong man is bound? Christ binds the strong man, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age, little g, so that he can then go into the nations gathering his people from each and every one of them while keeping Satan at bay from causing all of nations to gather together in order to bring about destruction to the mission of God. However, we're told that at the end he will be loosed for a little while, which we'll see that picture in, in verses 7 through 10. And we've already seen that. Right at the end of the age, the dragon will be loosed for a while in order to influence the nations through the beast and the false prophet where they will gather together against the church which will usher in the closing of the millennial period which is the consummation of Christ's second advent. So that's what the binding of Satan is all about. Now in the midst of this binding, the Lord does what he has done for us in multiple times. Because remember, the goal of Revelation is not fear. It is not intelligence, it is hope. And so like he has done in all of these recapitulating cycles, is he has given us a new window or vision of the state of the saints within Christ's spiritual reign. And what we see in Revelation 20 verse 4 through 6 provides the clearest picture in the Bible, for those who have eyes to see it, of what we call the intermediate state for those who are in the Lord. Now, what is the intermediate state? The intermediate state is that period which refers to where a saint goes to, a Christian goes to, or an unbeliever goes to after they die, but before Christ's second coming. In other words... Where are our brother and sisters currently at? That refers to the intermediate state. That state that is in between this present age and the age to come, marked by the second coming of Christ. And what Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6 does is it brings comfort to every one of the believers there in Rome throughout Ephesus, throughout Asia Minor, who is experiencing the intense, terrible persecution and tribulation of seeing their brothers and sisters killed in Colosseums, burnt on walls to light cities, it is to give them comfort to say, our brothers and sisters are reigning with Jesus. Their death is not loss." It is gain. They are getting to experience the first resurrection. They reign with Jesus in glory right now. And this is the picture that we see here today. A celebration of hope for all of those brothers and sisters who have gone before us. And I hope that this gives you comfort today and encouragement. If you have a loved one who is in Jesus, who has gone to be with Him, I don't think there is a more comforting, wonderful passage in the Bible than what we look at today of where they currently are and what they are currently doing. So with that being said, let's look at the text. Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones... This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign for him for a thousand years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Before we get into explaining what I believe this passage illustrates in the interpretation that we have consistently followed throughout, that is the amillennial interpretation, that interpretation that that sees the millennium now, the tribulation period is now in Christ, I want to first talk about what would be the most common interpretation, primarily here in the West, of this text. And we talked a little bit about this last time, but, but let's clarify it a little bit more that the primary, probably the most common view of this passage, this 1,000 years, is that of a literal 1,000 years. And even those who don't hold to the literal 1,000, it's still a physical, earthly reign of Jesus. Jesus has come back. He has come back glorified. He has bound Satan for a period, locked him away in a jail from doing any kind of influence. And he now reigns in a wonderful, beautiful, Christ ruling society that still has the curse, a lessened curse, but death is still there. And when he comes here, the idea in verses 4 through 6 that is pictured by this first resurrection for the premillennial believer is that this is a picture that when Christ returns before kind of a third return, which is the final judgment at the end of the millennium, that He will come with all full physically and spiritually glorified believers. So what you have at the millennium state, he's, He's killed a whole bunch of people, and the only thing that remains are Him and now glorified believers that have been raised with Him in their body. However there are people that when He returned that stayed through the tribulation, tribulation saints, they will not be glorified. They will be righteous in Christ for their faithfulness to endure to the end. However, they will live alongside glorified believers and the glorified Jesus in still a presently cursed world. Now, for those who are not resurrected and glorified, these tribulation saints, they will ultimately grow old and they will die. Now, do they then immediately get resurrected back into... Life? There's debate on that. Most premillennialists couldn't tell you the answer to that. There's a big debate. Some say they are immediately just kind of fully resurrected and glorified in that state. Others say then they go to an intermediate state waiting for the end of the millennium. Nevertheless, you get this both glorified and non-glorified status of living there and that over time those individuals who are living, the argument is that at the end of the age, there will be a great falling away from those former saints, whether it's from their children or one premillennial view argues that in the second resurrection, when Christ releases Satan, he will actually resurrect all unbelievers to have a war against the millennial saints. Now, this runs into a whole lot of problems. One of the issues for me, the greatest problem of it, is it requires hermeneutical or interpretive gymnastics that clearly undo very clear aspects of Scripture regarding the one and for all general resurrection. There's not multiple resurrections in Scripture that are referred to. There are not multiple comings of Jesus. There are not multiple end-final battles. There's just one. The major issue that I have is the idea that Christ would return, live as the glorified King of glory in a fallen world again. That He will come to a world where there is still death. And that He will defeat, but not perfectly. So in other words, He will come to inaugurate what He's already inaugurated. Just a physical version of it. And one of the arguments that a premillennialist might use to say, well, yeah, glorified and non-glorified saints can live together because when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he was here 40 days and he dwelt amongst people. The problem with that is Jesus actually says in those 40 days, I have yet to be glorified. I've yet to go to my Father. When I go to my Father, though, it's different. And the vision that John gives us of Jesus is in the ascension is way different than what we got in that 40 days of Him teaching. He still veiled Himself upon the resurrection. He is no longer veiled in the ascension. He is fully glorious. And so, if this is not talking about a physical resurrected state of where you have believers who are coming to life, reigning for a thousand years, and then unbelievers coming back to life at the end, what is being referred to? And I think the answer is clearly Spiritual. So let's let's talk about that. I'm going to try to do my best tonight to to try to show from Scripture that that interpretation is, is, is I think, the better one to follow. First, we see the heavenly reign of Christians here in verse 4. It says, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. You know, it's interesting about that word throne there in Revelation is there's only one time the word throne in Revelation is used in relation to this present age within earth. And that's referring to Satan's throne. Back in the letter to the churches. You dwell where Satan's throne is. To the church at Pergamon. Every other mention of thrones prior to the new heavens and new earth is heavenly. Heavenly. Every vision is a heavenly one. And so we would be amiss to immediately change where the the, the trajectory or the direction of these thrones are. So I I saw thrones and seated on those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Who are these who have been given the authority to judge? And he goes on by telling us who they are. These, notice are the souls of those who were beheaded and who did not bow to the beast and worship him and did not receive its mark on their foreheads and hands. Notice the word that he uses, the souls of them. It's all the souls of them sitting on the throne. Now, is there anything in Scripture that talks about believers being seated on thrones? being given victory for overcoming the wicked one for overcoming this world well yes we've seen lots of promises in revelation about those who overcome giving a, be given, be, being given authority to judge but not just in revelation we see this in the new testament throughout we'll see this in luke chapter 22 verse 28 through 30 and I like Luke's account here because Luke, once again, like he does so well, makes clear that this statement is not limited to just the apostles. It's limited to believers. He says, you, Luke twenty two twenty eight 28-30, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, a.k.a. have not, have overcome the beast, have not worshipped. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat, and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now we know throughout Scripture, Israel refers to all God's covenant people. That when we look at the new heavens and new earth, what do we see? We see a a building, a new Jerusalem with foundations of the twelve tribes and the gates of the twelve apostles. This is clearly symbolic authority that is given to the people of God to reign in Israel the kingdom of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Man, he would say a lot to us day with that. You are going to judge the world. Revelation 22, verse 26, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority... Over the nations. In other words, faithfulness in Christ unto death leads to what? It leads to receiving a place of authority. Getting a place of authority. So, when our brothers and sisters in this life who were faithful unto death, and there's two groups here that are being referred to. The first is Christian martyrs. These are those who are beheaded for the word of God the testimony of Jesus. The second group, those who did not worship the beast or bow or take the number, that's referring to Christians in general. So all Christians that have passed on from this life are in view here. They go on from this place to receive the crowns and the authority that they have received within the intermediate state. And what aspect of authority do they now hold? And the answer is, they will be... The means that God brings judgment onto the wicked world. Remember back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 to 11? We got another window into heaven there and a picture of these saints who have passed on to glory, who were persecuted in this life. And what did we read there? Revelation 6, verse 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You see what's happened with these Christian martyrs here? They have now taken place the place as the prosecutor against wicked, where Satan was once the accuser of God's people. Now the righteous saints who cry out for the justice of the Lord become the accuser against the wicked. Do you see the great reversal? This is what Revelation is all about, the reversals. Those angels who left their heavenly estate and fell to wickedness, now behold the saints who have taken their place in the heavenly courts and now serve to accuse them of their wickedness. And it will be the cry of the testimony of the martyrs and the faithful saints that God will use as the means to bring judgment and vindication on the wickedness of the world. It's not just the martyrs though. Every faithful Christian saint who was faithful unto death, who has passed on from them their life is in this picture here. And should we not know that this is true, we see this reality from Scripture over and over again. That there is no such thing as soul sleep. There is no such thing as when people pass on, they are, they are no longer in the presence of God. You see, I'll give you a little what we call biblical cosmology for a moment here. In the Bible, there is a threefold cosmology. A lot of times you'll hear it put this way. Things which are above the earth, the earth, and under the earth. Christ has authority above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. Now, what are those spheres of cosmology, right? Obviously, above the earth is the heavenly realm, that where God dwells. The earth is currently where we live, this physical realm that we we call earth and life here. And that which was below the earth, the Hebrew word was sheol, the grave, the place of the underworld. And in the old covenant, there were two compartments in sheol. Well, you could say three compartments. There was Sheol and lower Sheol, upper Sheol and lower Sheol. Now, upper Sheol had two compartments within it for people. There was Hades and there was Abraham's bosom. And this is where all of the saints went prior to Christ's coming. They went to Abraham's bosom by Abraham's side. And then there was Hades, the place of death. And there was a chasm that separates them. We see that in the story of Lazarus. We'll we'll read that a little bit later. Then there was lower Sheol. Lower Sheol is the place where demons were cast. Tartarus. They were thrown down and cast down into that place and imprisoned. You read about that in 2 Peter 3. When Christ descended into the grave, Ephesians talks about how he led a host of captives to glory in his ascension. What was that talking about? It was talking about when he descended into Sheol, the grave, he carried with him all of the former saints from Abraham's bosom into the presence of God, where they dwell forever. Why? Because now all those saints... That dwelled in the presence, that had dwelled in Abraham's bosom, now had the justification of the Son of God, the righteousness of the Son of God upon them from Calvary, that they could now be in the presence of God without being destroyed. So that now Christ can say, Where I am, you will be also. He goes to prepare a place. That is where he is. He carried the old covenant saints with him, he led a host of captives with him. And now, to be absent from the body is to be present where? With the Lord. Now, all of the hosts of the glory of heaven go directly to Him. And we see this in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 8, this beautiful picture of the intermediate state the Apostle Paul gives us. He writes For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are of always good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would be rather away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is what it means. This is where the saints are. They are with the Lord. They are reigning with Jesus. And that's why Paul would say this with utter acclamation. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, Philippians 1, 21-23, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ For that is far better. It's far better. That verse there, maybe, verse 23, to be apart from the body is far better. To be with the Lord is far better. Was one of the most pivotal verses in my entire life. Because it is the verse That destroyed every ounce of resentment I had for losing my mother at a young age. Because as much as I would love for her to be here with her grandchildren, as much as I would love to hug her once more, as much as I would love to hear her advice, so much, I wouldn't do anything to take her from where she is in glory. She reigns with Christ. And that is far better. Far better. This is the hope that we have. This is what Satan and the, and, and the demonic forces so rail against the people of God in spiritual warfare. War For why? It's because we now dwell in their heavenly abode. We go to that place which they once occupied and cannot get back to. This is the glorious heavenly reign of the saints. It says that they came to life. Now this is where that word is often seen because there's another place where it talks about the others come to life and there's no doubt in verse 5 when it talks about and those who uh, else died, they will not come to life till the end of thousand years. No doubt that's talking about a bodily resurrection. So the others will look at this and say, well, if that means bodily resurrection, then this comes to life has to also mean bodily resurrection, but not so. And the reason why is because John gives us a qualifier about this kind of coming to life that's found nowhere else in Scripture when he calls this the first resurrection. There is no other place anywhere where you see protos, anastasis, first resurrection, those words put together, meaning John is trying to put together something that's totally different in the way that we think about anastasis, about resurrection. If he merely meant resurrection, there would be no reason for him to say first with it. He would just say anastasis. In other words, so what he means here by first doesn't mean chronology. It means a qualitative difference from the other resurrection. You see this in Scripture a lot. When you see old and new, first and last, or first and second in Scripture, it rarely is in reference to chronology. It's in reference to qualitative difference. I'll give you the best example. The first Adam and the second, or the last Adam. The first death and the second death. They are qualitatively different. Meaning what? Meaning when that little identifier is given, the qualitative difference is for the purpose of denoting eternal things. So the first resurrection is what establishes an eternal one. As opposed to the general anastasis, which does not denote eternal life. The first death does not denote anything other than we just pass on. Whereas the second death denotes qualitative difference. Eternal death. So when we see these terms, it's important to understand. So what does he mean here by come to life if it isn't bodily resurrection that he has for this specific moment? It's talking about the fact that we as saints have already been given new life in Christ. And the first time that that new life is fully experienced is when we pass into glory. Do we already have it? Yeah. Are we already new Christians? Do we already have new life? Have we already been born again? Yep, yep, yes indeed. But when is the first moment that you will feel that life divorced from any sinful bondage, any opposition. It won't be till glory. Till you pass from this to the next. And so, you see in Luke twenty three forty three 43, when Jesus says to him, Today, you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me. It'll be life for you. You're coming to life, not loss." John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, first death, yet shall he live. Resurrection, first resurrection. John 14, 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. What does he mean by that? Because I'm alive, you're in me. Your life is tied to me, Jesus says. So as long as I'm alive, you're alive. And we feel that. We get that qualitative life the moment we pass into His presence. Why? Because He is the life. He is the life. And we will know it fully when we get to His presence. I love this passage from 2 Timothy 2, verse 11-12. Paul writes to Timothy, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. So when we came to Christ, we were buried with Him in His death, raised with Him in His life already. And the first time that we feel the fullness of that qualification in life Paul's already said it, right? Is when we go to glory. Why? Cuz right now the spirit that we have in us is merely a guarantee of the glory to come. Where it will be fully experienced, first spiritually in the intermediate state and then fully when our both our body and spirits come together in full glorification. It says that they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's this state. Right now this is happening. The immediate opposition or the objection is is, well, are they reigning with Christ? How was he reigning? Where does it say in scripture that we're reigning with him right now in this present moment? Well, there's a couple places. But the most clear one is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 through 7, Paul writes this, "But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only were you spiritually resurrected when you were born again into Christ, but you were seated with Him, where? In the heavenly courts. And when you pass on from this life, you go to the home which has already been given to you. To the inheritance which is already yours right now. You just get to experience it in all of its fullness. So they're going to take part. Our brothers and sisters who have passed on faithfully in this life, when you, Christian, close your eyes, that will be the first time that you immediately open it into the fullness of life, which is the immediate presence of God. That's where the fullness of life is. That's Psalm 16. At His right hand, where there are pleasures forevermore. That's where you go and you reign with Him. So right now, our brothers and sisters, as they are praying, how long, O Lord? Where He is going to eventually answer that prayer with the day of vengeance, which we talked about this morning. Right now, they are seated with Him. They are reigning with Him. They are looking forward to the glory to come. They dwell in white robes, their spirits cleansed in purpose, waiting for the day where they will receive glorified bodies. In the resurrection to come, the general resurrection at the end. But they are reigning. And they reign for the fullness of a thousand years. And one more little nugget to just show why this a thousand years is meant to be understood figuratively. We talked about the last time we were together. About how the Old Testament uses one thousand years symbolically throughout. The Lord owns a cattle on a thousand heels, But the most important thousand and reason for understanding a thousand, is actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, where we read, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. In other words, the concept of a thousand years isn't doing nothing more than denoting the concept of Christ's complete covenant faithfulness. He will be faithful to gather in every single soul given to him by the Father to accomplish the covenant of redemption. To a thousand generations simply means that there won't be a single one of those given to him that he will lose. They will be fully gathered an innumerable multitude beyond all comprehension. And he will not come until that faithfulness is completed, till he gathers the fullness of his covenant people. And so that's why we are currently reigning and waiting. That's why, what did he say in Deuteronomy 6? For I must wait a little while longer, what? Until the fullness of your brothers or sisters are brought in. That's why he tells them they have to Wait. Because the number is still being gathered. And that's the Jubilee, which will be consummated by that. Now, we turn away for a moment here from the glorious reign in heaven of the saints to the present intermediate state or condition of unbelievers, which we see at the very beginning of First 5. It says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now here this is those those who have yet to come to life are those who remain in a place of spiritual death. They are in Hades. And we get this picture both from the parable of Lazarus, rich man and Lazarus and also from this same chapter and a few verses from here. So let's look at a couple of these. Luke chapter 16 verse 22 through 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So, we see where is the unbeliever carried? He is carried into Hades. And that is still the place where unbelievers go to. It is a place of spiritual torment. And so, they are spiritually dead. They are spiritually in torment right now. And when they are going to be resurrected at the general resurrection, both the resurrection of the righteous and the, and the, the wicked at the same time, they will merely be resurrected to further judgment. Whereas those who are already living spiritually... Will receive glorified bodies and continue in life. Right? So the current unbelieving state are those who are in Hades. We see this verse 13 of Revelation 20. The sea gave up the dead and who and who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. This is talking about the general resurrection at the end, where Hades and death, they cast up unbelievers, they are judged. They are going to be given physical bodies so that when they go into the lake of fire, Gehenna, they will experience both spiritual and physical torment, primarily spiritual, but there will be physical torment for all eternity. Whereas the saints will experience physical and spiritual blessing for all eternity in glory. Now, why do I keep talking about this general resurrection? Because in the Bible, it's overwhelmingly clear. That when Jesus returns, there will be a general resurrection of both. One to the righteous, the other to wickedness. They are happening simultaneously. One resurrection, resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the wicked. And they are going to be sorted just like the wheat and the tares. We see that parable throughout this constant dividing of humanity there with the resurrection. We see this in John chapter 5, verse 28 through 29. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus says when he comes, will be one resurrection. The good to the resurrection of the just. The other to the resurrection of judgment. Same time. When does it happen? When Jesus returns. So we want to use the simple things in Scripture to help us understand the more difficult ones. The first resurrection is experienced by believers. The second death is only experienced by unbelievers. This is the qualitative difference. Everyone will be generally resurrected. But only believers receive the first resurrection. That's spiritual resurrection. Life, eternal. Everyone will face physical death. But only unbelievers face the second death. It's eternal. Do you see the qualitative differences? And this is what John's wanting to get. This is why he uses those terms first and second. It's a qualitative difference. Not just simply trying to denote and put things in chronological order. There would have been easier ways for him to have done that. So, whereas the unbeliever is already in a place of torment, he will be resurrected to face further torment, to stand before the white throne judgment of the Lord. The believer will be resurrected physically. So that that physical resurrection now meets that glorified spirit that has already been resurrected and been dwelling in the presence of Christ until that moment occurs, whether short or long, which it has been for going on 2,000 years now. So this is a beautiful reality, but also a terrifying one for those who are not in There won't be a second chance. It's those who endure to the end, who have received new life in Christ, who are a part, partakers of the first resurrection. And now we see what is the great blessing of partaking in this new birth, in this first resurrection with Christ, this spiritual resurrection. John chapter 5 verse 24, he says, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Romans 6.13 Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Brothers and sisters, If you're in Christ, you have already been brought into the first resurrection. You have already been brought from dead to life. You have already been Lazarus coming forth out of the grave of sin with all of the death cloth of wickedness and self-righteousness pulled off of you and you have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You have been brought from death to life. You are in Jubilee. You're alive. There is great blessing in that. And that is what Revelation is always trying to do. If you're in Jesus, you got nothing to worry about. They can come and do whatever they please with us, church. They can hurt us, torment us, and kill us. It only carries us the glory. What's also important is the way in which Revelation is setting up. Because Revelation... 20 throughout is following in line exactly with the four part picture at the end of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel 37, before Christ brings the great battle between Gog and Magog, the final battle, something happens before the final battle. Ezekiel 37, it's the picture of the valley of dry bones. For Christ breathes, God breathes upon the valley. And they all come to life to be His witnesses. That's what we're doing right now. We've been given, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We are the valley of dry bones. Christ has spoke, speak, spoken over us. He has brought us to life, given us his spirit. We are his witnesses throughout this millennial reign, which will end with a final consummating battle, Gog and Magog, which is Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it will then end with what? The building of the new temple and the eternal reign of God, which is all Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is pictured where? Revelation 21 and 22. But it will make clear that in a new heaven and new earth, there won't be a temple. Why? Because we'll be the temple. This picture is matching Old Testament prophecy and giving us clear revelation in Christ. We are already alive in Christ. Blessed are those who have partaken in the first resurrection. And this is why Revelation 14 can be true. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Blessed are those who partake of the first resurrection. It's the same picture. It's the same thing. And it is reason for celebration. Why? Because over such, the second death has no power. No power. If you've been made alive in Christ, you can't be touched by the second death. You are, there is no condemnation, no judgment which can be brought against you. The only thing you will ever know in Christ is glory. It's glory. And this is why Paul sings in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable." Behold, I tell you a mystery: Wishing not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is why you can work unto the Lord no matter what the cost. Because you've got nothing to fear. The greatest power that holds mankind in captivity is the fear of death. And it's been crushed by Jesus. Spiritually and physically for the believer. Revelation 2, 10-11, Jesus writes this to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I love these two pictures together. The Lord warns Smyrna, you are going to face tribulation for ten days. But then at the end of the book, he promises them that you will reign for Christ for a thousand years. What are these symbolic terms doing? First, the ten days just merely notes, it's just a short time compared to what your reign will be. And I love the comparison. What you suffer in this life, you will receive a hundredfold in glory with Christ. You may suffer for ten days, this whole life, but you will receive eternal reign with Jesus. This is incredible. This is why this book is all about hope. Now, not future. Right now. Right now, this gives me hope when I go and I visit a grandmother who may not be here very long, who won't be here very long. And I can look and see joy in her eyes because she knows she goes to reign. She will go to reign. She will go to be with Jesus. It's why I can be in the hospital with a beloved, faithful woman in this church who, at the very last, up to the very last breath of her life, will see it as an opportunity to tell Jesus to a young man. Why? Because Jesus is where she's going. Got no reason to be afraid. So, everything I do, I'm going to labor for the Lord. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it's never in vain. And those women will be together in glory and all of those who passed on are together in glory, reigning with Jesus, experiencing the fullness of spiritual life. Right now, we have but a foreshadow, a taste of it. But when we get to heaven, when we get to glory, we will get the fullness of spiritual life in all of its fullness. And there we will be priest with God and Christ something that we already are a part of, it will continue in. And that's the beauty of the Lord's Day worship. When we gather on the Lord's Day, we gather together with heaven in corporate worship with all of the priests of God who've been bought by the blood of Jesus who come together for the purpose of presenting themselves living sacrifices both in glory in here to the One who redeemed them. Remember Isaiah 61 this morning? I want you to hear verse 3-6 through of what Jesus brings in the Jubilee. He said that He would come to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Beauty from ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called, called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall be most. This is what Peter's getting at. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, the reality of what we have been called into as priests of the living God presenting ourselves living sacrifices doesn't stop at death. You will spend eternity as a priest of God. You will spend all eternity cultivating the garden of glory. You will spend all eternity presenting yourself a living sacrifice in the immediate presence of the One who died for you. And our brothers and sisters, who are the first fruits of glory, have gone to celebrate. And if the Lord should tarry, we will likely all join them, waiting for the fullness of the day He returns, where we receive a glorified body now to match that glorified spirit that we have with Him in His presence. Revelation 321, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What is what is conquering in the Christian life? It just is finishing the race. Well, Paul said, I finished the race. I fought the fight. It's just being faithful to the end. It's never letting go of the one who will never let go of you. That's what it means to conquer. And we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Already. Do you live with the reality that you are a citizen of heaven? Already. And when you pass from this life, You're just going home. You see, Jesus, in this story this morning, at his rejection at Nazareth, my friends, the reason that he was rejected at Nazareth is because Nazareth wasn't his home. Heaven is. And the reason that we are rejected in this life is because this is not our home. Heaven is. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We are following Christ to glory. You need to be restless. By restless I mean you don't need to get comfortable here. You should feel out of place in this world. And you should never know the fullness of what it is to be home until we all will step in the presence of the Lord. And there, home awaits us. And it is there that our brothers and sisters, those who have been ravaged throughout this world, who are being ravaged right now in persecution and martyrdom, and every single saint in between who passes on in the glory, they go to reign at home with Christ. What a hope for persecuted believers. What a hope for us. And so here are three things to close with. Death is infinite gain for believers, not loss. You have got nothing to be afraid of when it comes to death. If you know Jesus, it is merely the passing into glory. It is the tunnel home. It is the comma to the better part of the sentence. It's glory, it's treasures, it's wonders, it's bliss. So there is nothing to be afraid of. It is gain, not loss. Secondly, you're already seated with Christ in heavenly places, you already have a place there. It has already been signed, secured, and established by the blood of Jesus for you on your behalf. When Christ died for you, His own. There is a place in heaven for you forever. You won't get written out. Your home will not be sold back to the banker. It is forever yours in Christ Jesus. And so lastly, live in light of the victory you've already been given. Live in light of the fact that nothing I ever do for Christ will be in vain. Live in light. Live in a spiritual, reckless abandonment for the Lord. That I don't have to fear men. I don't have to be afraid of what tomorrow brings. When I get the terrible diagnosis of cancer. When I fall out tomorrow. When death comes like a storm out of nowhere. If you're in Christ, you've got only reason to celebrate. There is only reason to celebrate. Because it is the glorious moment, the most glorious moment of a believer's life is the the moment that they will behold their Savior's face in glory. That's it. I hope you believe that. Because it will eliminate you from this mentality of, well, I hope Jesus comes after I kind of do some stuff. There's some cool things I'd like to get done first. the most satisfying moment of our life when we, when we, is when we will see life itself in the face of Jesus. And what a day that will be. So this, rather than trying to create some esoteric, weird, abstract concept of a, of a reign, an earthly reign with Jesus, even when He says, my kingdom is not of this world, Rather, this passage is meant to give great hope. It gives us hope of the guarantee of the spread of the gospel in the binding of Satan and it gives us hope that no matter what men try to throw against us in this present age, we already have victory and glory in Christ. That's what Revelation 20 is all about. It's about victory and the hope we have right now in Jesus not to come, not just to come. Right now, you already have it. So live in light of that hope and the victory of the fact that when you pass from this life, or he should return, no matter what, you will reign with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths therein. God, we thank you for the hope we have in Jesus, for the victory we have in Jesus Lord, we thank you for the assurance we have of all of our brothers and sisters who have passed on to you into glory. That we can we can celebrate and sing with absolute delight and joy, knowing that by your grace, by your sovereign goodness, by your infinite mercy, they are in your presence, God. We thank you knowing that no matter what happens tonight, because of our faith in you, because of our faith in Jesus, that we, no matter what should happen, no matter what should happen in our sleep, no matter what should happen tomorrow or this week, we have no fear, no no fear at all of death because we know it only brings gain in Christ. So to live is Christ and to die is gain to be absent from the bodies, to be present from You. And so Lord, until You call us home, let us live faithfully for You. Let us be those who go out to the world proclaiming to every soul the reality that there is only bondage-breaking, liberating truth in Jesus Christ. That He alone can remove the fear of death that fear and that reality which places all men equal, rich or poor, high or low. We are all made equal by death. And therefore, God, let us proclaim to everyone that there is only hope in Jesus. There is only victory in Jesus. God, we thank You for the promises of Your Word. For the guarantee of the hope we have in Christ. And for the fact that we have already been made alive and seated with You in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God, let us live in light of the newness of the life we've received as brand new creations in Christ. Firstfruits of the glory to come. Proclaimers. Priests preachers of the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us now go live faithfully for You in all things. In Your name we pray. Amen.